This week's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook download and 30-day trial, visit audibletrial.com slash insideoutside. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash insideoutside to download your free audiobook today. Also, Startup Week Lincoln. Mark your calendars for the week of September 27th through October 3rd, where you can attend hundreds of events, meetups, and parties to connect with the region's startup community, including TEDx Lincoln, Silicon Prairie News Awards, and a live taping of the Inside Outside podcast at the Pipeline Entrepreneurs Meetup. Details can be found at lincoln.startupweek.co. On this episode, we discuss the ins and outs of pitching. We also caught up with the pitch whisperer himself, Tyler Crowley, to discuss the Stockholm startup scene and give you a few tips on creating an interesting, story-driven pitch. All of this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And I'm Paul Jarrett. And Matt Boyd, your radio voice is on point today. <laughs> it's on point. It's on point. It's on point. I can turn it on and turn it <laughs> off. Uh, so this week, we're talking about pitching. Pitching. Let me re-say that. <laughs> so this week we're talking about pitching. So uh, I, I always like it. Here, here's how you start. Let's just leave this. And Matt just threw his hands up in there. Matt gets super fired up. He gets about this far, and then he goes, "So what do you guys think about that?" And you can tell he's like, "Damn, I need a better segue." But that's I do okay. Need a better segue. No, I think we just leave it that. <laughs> I love it. I, we're awkwarding our way into content here. Dude, that's my life. That's my, <laughs> my life. We'll be the first one to say, cut that shit out. <laughs> yeah, don't do that anymore. Go right into the good no. stuff. So, I, I, so what I about pitching? The awkward. It's great. What so do what do you guys, think, do you guys, about guys think about pitching? Uh, man, I, my first thought about it is know why the hell you're pitching. Like, what is the goal of your pitch? And I think I might have just kind of like stole that from you unintentionally as we were talking about it, Brian. But, but like, I think so many times... You, you, if you really drill down to an entrepreneur, like they think they're going to pitch and somebody's going to jump up in the crowd and say, I'll invest a million dollars in your company. And it just doesn't work like that. A, so, lo- a lot of times people beat around the bush. Like they just, you know, they say things that, that don't really add to the, the story or the mechanics of their business. They're just kind of beating around the bush and, and saying things that are, yeah. Every word needs to count. Absolutely. Every single word, every single breath, every, every single visual, clip, every slide, like, yep. whatever it is. So let's, let's back up and say, okay, let's kind of deconstruct what pitches are. So there's a variety of types of pitches. And I think, you know, coming from Motion, this is where we get the most mentor whiplash because we, you know, you put somebody up to pitch and then everybody has an opinion about pitching. It's like, everybody's include that, don't different. include that. Yeah, yeah. include that, don't yeah. include that. Um, and so, so let's step back and say, okay, there's a variety of types of pitches that you have to kind of have in your arsenal. And the first yep. one is probably the, the one sentence when you're at a cocktail a party, liner. what do you do? Yep. Why do you do it? Um, pitch the 30 second elevator. I mean, actually it's almost it's uh, pre elevator. It's yeah. almost like the one sentence to get that next sentence out of the person or that first well, question asked. I, I did it. I, I posted a tweet one time during startup week a couple of years ago and because there were people that were pitching and it was, mm-hmm. I think supposed to be a one liner. And as I heard a couple of them, I thought, oh man, all you really need to say at this point is um, our company's called blank and we're like blank, but for blank and we make money blank. Yeah. Like that's like, <laughs> just fill those in and that's your start. Like that's the start of your one liner. Yeah. You'd be surprised though, but even that, like 
putting your uh, company of comparing it to another uh, from an analogy perspective. No, there are bad. some investors that hate yeah. that. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. a very polarizing yeah. topic. Like, well, like two years ago, I felt like it was okay. And now it's like, oh, shit, everybody does that. Yeah. Uber um, for X, Airbnb yeah. for this, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I, personally, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the purpose of any communication is to be understood. And so if that's the best way to get your idea understood, um, it, it may not be unique. And I think that's why people are pushing back against that idea of that methodology. Yeah. I think, I think that will help weed out the investors that you want or don't want or the advisors, because some of them want that moonshot, you know, the next Facebook that, I mean, everybody says they want it, but are they really, you know, willing to, you know, invest in a company that has no plan for revenue or is it something that has, you know, truly like a, a return that's, you know, you can kind of map out and make sense. So, I always think like stay true to what you believe in because you're going to like connect with the right investors and mentors and whatever. So you one liner, what were some of the one liner 30 second elevator pitch, which is is the kind of the, you say who you are and what you do and and the problem that you're solving. Then the question, hopefully you've instilled enough interest or curiosity that the next person asks a question like what, how do you do that or or something. And then that's when you go into the more 30 second uh, overview of uh, more details about again, who are you targeting? What are you doing? Yep. How do you actually solve that problem? Um, and that's the 30 second kind of pitch. And then moving on from there, you probably have the three to five to six minute kind of, I would call them demo day pitches, which yep. are more kind, kind of, of mid range pitch. Yeah. The, the, it tells a little bit more in depth. Uh, it's more story focused. Uh, it's to really hammer home the problem that you're trying to solve and put that with a, a person or a co- customer or an audience uh, and then give them enough information about the solution, the team, um, the background of uh, of why you're different, yep. and to get that again get that, that first date. And yep. So yeah. that's the first date demo day kind of pitch, and then when you really get into pitching is when you get into you know in front of a VC or in front of an angel group, and you have to have your seven to ten to twenty minute deck, um, and, and that can which range. involves tons of projections and metrics and and, and everything in between uh, and mechanics. It's not only about the pitch of what you're going to say in that ten minutes, but what happens when they derail you within the first minute and a half and say, Hey, let's jump right to slide stories. 25. I'm I got like, yeah. stories. So what are, what are some misconceptions that people, you know, let's say that people never really read a book about pitching or they just don't have much knowledge and they create a pitch. What, what are some of the common misconceptions that you guys see in pitches or some of the mistakes that you've made in pitches? Well, first step, stop and go back, read a book. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> yeah. or Google, there's a 25,000 articles about how to pitch in that. And, yeah. um, so that's the first place I would go. But so don't pitch without doing your homework. Um, but having said that, if you, common mistakes, even for the folks that have read books and, and have kind of looked at this stuff, I think the biggest thing is they start with the problem, not the problem, but their product. And they, yeah, they want to talk about, go talk here's about my features. product and here's why I'm great. Okay, I don't care. What's the problem you're solving and how my is that going to... My name is John Smith. Exactly. My company's name Globably. Globably? Yeah, yeah that's my new <laughs> name. And it does blank. Any questions? <laughs> so the product, if you focus too much on the product up front, you don't... Uh, I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know, but I'm going to buy globity.com and just put a picture of my face on it. Uh, So a lot of, a lot of companies create slides. What are some things that people do wrong visually with slides? Cause I could, man, I want to go back to your previous question though. Yeah. So I think one of the foundational mistakes that people make is they actually, and, and you might think that you do, and I've fallen victim of this many times, but 
they might actually think that they understand their own business inside and out. But man, I'm telling you, there's something magical about hammering out a business plan. And I know like a lot of people might like hear this and cringe or, or whatever, but I think certain types of people, certain personalities, like it really benefits them. Um, it's huge for me. And you know, anytime I'm going into, I, I always think the key to the pitch is the level of confidence that you have in what you're doing. That's really like the foundation. Like, do you truly believe what you're doing is possible? And for me, it's like one liner, um, 30 second elevator pitch, um, then there's like stand up pitch deck and then there's an email pitch deck. But I also right. have pro forma, a one sheeter that I can email about it. Um, and then actually the business plan, if you know, they so actually want to dive that deep. But if I have those materials lined up and I know it inside and out, up and down, you know, left, right, left, right, A, B, select, start, <laughs> contra reference. Um, like I, I feel really like that's actually what I personally need to you know, stand up and do the correct pitch. And I think a lot of people miss out on that. They just create, you know, nine to 14 slides and, you know, they're, they're trying to convince themselves that they believe what they're saying is real and they actually don't know the, the details of what they're actually talking about. I think the business model is, is one of the key things that is often overlooked. Like actually, how are you going to make money mm-hmm. and why is this unique? How are you going to protect, uh, you know, have a moat around that idea yep. so that, you know, anybody can't just jump in and do the exact same thing. Yep. Uh, why are you unique in being able to solve this problem and what's you know the benefit that your team can bring to the table? Because at the end of the day, pitching is all about trying to help those investors kind of mitigate their risk and try to help them understand where the risks are. Yep. You have to get rid of all the risks, but you mm-hmm. have to understand or you have to show that you understand where the risks are right. and help them understand what that story and why you're the right person to overcome those obstacles. See, it, and make it, it. It's kind of weird because my experience is totally the exact opposite it's like literally (laughs) and so uh my pitching experience my pitching career uh is basically non-existent (laughs) right um whenever i was raising money we didn't pitch one single time not not even once and so all of our money was raised through uh conversations the uh, basically the investor asking deep questions and us knowing Every single yes. answer to every, yep. so our basically our pitch material yeah. was the like, Q and A is like just as important yeah. as the pitch. And, and, that, and yeah, that they're goes gonna, for like yeah, they're going to ask like yeah. CAC well, and, and all that kind of stuff. So. And I think part of the pitch that's often you think about slide decks, but I think part of the pitch is really uh, when you do have a product, show your product, demo the product, you know, get the person touching, feeling, interacting with that. That goes a long way um, to show that you can actually execute, and it kind of. Um, kind of highlight some of the other things that you don't have to, it's hard to highlight in a slide. Yeah, can right. I actually execute? Well, yes, I can. Here's my prototype. Here's my traction. Here's and, what I've done. And that's kind of my, so my, it's like basically what I saw is uh, that you're, you're basically pitching, but it's just in a different format. Yeah, you're not, you don't have a formal, sure. I think that um, in the Midwest, some of the ideas are a little bit antiquated that you have to have a, and, and for your benefit, it's different than yep. for the investor's benefit. I'm talking specifically an investor pitch yep. where you have to have that very specific outline of like the pro forma and the, you know, this 48 slides, that's too much, but 20 slides, <laughs> um, you know, 36 point phone. <laughs> right. And I don't know, to me, it like, just as much information can be gained. And I don't think that the Midwest is caught up to this idea, but just as much info can be gained from a conversation and asking very, very deep questions. I've found that pitches are most beneficial when we were raising capital um, for not actually the people that are in the room watching it, 
but they go and tell mm-hmm. other people, right? So I would actually come to view a pitch and, you know, somebody would say, hey, you're going to pitch in front of 150 people. I'm like, great. And they call back and they say, hey, we're going to actually invite like a class and now it's going to be 200 people. And I'm like, great. And then they call back and say, okay, like we're going to invite another angel group. So it's like 250 people. Like, is that okay? I'm like, yeah, great. Because I like the way that I view that is I just nixed 250 phone calls. Right. Yeah. yeah and and so I want a big audience because in my experience, if you can kind of you know, do well with that audience. Now they're going to trickle out and go tell, you know, one to three people if you did a good job, but if you do a bad job, they're probably going to tell seven people. (laughs) That's kind of the metric that I think. I think a lot of it, good, better and different is is about storytelling and and, and it's different at different stages. So if you're raising a a scene round or an angel round, it's all about the story story. It's because you don't have a lot of traction to actually, or numbers and that you can put forward. I will tell you, I'm, I've been there and even when you have numbers, it's still about the story. Right. And so the, the early stage is much more about the story and the team Mm -hmm. and and that as you get into the series, a series B, it's much more about, you know, the execution and the the numbers around the whole thing. So I think that depends on the types of pitches. But again, I think story is so important because again, you never know, like you go and pitch in front of 10 people at an angel event or something. They're not necessarily going to remember all the details, but they will remember the story. You know, yeah. or the pain points and the Absolutely. characters around it. So yeah. the person you know, at end motion, we bring in Tyler Crowley. And if anybody's interested in pitching, I would highly recommend you take a look. Oh, he's at amazing. His stuff. Uh, and he helps basically train all the folks that go on launched uh, festival stage. I mean, he's and, trained Dropbox. Um, Mint, Yammer. Yep. Mint, yeah. Uh, actually, and I think he's our interview guest this week. But there we go. But anyway, uh, so check out Tyler. That's how you Tyler. segue, Matt Boyd. <laughs> <laughs> check out Tyler Crowley. Uh, but he's his, um, I guess, MO is really focused on how do you get that story right at the beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. I think uh, I'll have to listen to that episode. Please do. <laughs> Paul, so you mentioned uh, confidence, and I think that I think that we've under, underplayed it even. I think confidence is the biggest, absolute biggest thing whenever yeah. you're pitching a yeah. company. Yeah, if you don't have confidence, why would anybody and invest in you? I, I it's remember, really, no, go ahead. Well, it's really hard in the beginning because you don't have a lot, right? You're pitching air and you feel, I think a lot of people, and, and I remember kind of going through this, but I had a great mentor that kind of helped me get over it, but you feel kind of phony. You feel a little bit fake because you're saying, look at this amazing thing that I haven't built or I've built kind of, and mm-hmm. it's kind of and doing I okay. Think and, we're kinda, and I yeah. think whatever. Um, but you know, this person um, who's, you know, raised hundreds of millions of dollars, helped explain like it's about the opportunity it's not Mm -hmm. about like what you're actually going to do it's about the opportunity where if everything fell perfectly in place like how much could this thing actually make how how well could it actually do and that just like flipped everything on its head for me and and i think that's really important for people out there listening um from entrepreneurs to investors to understand is you know that initial pitch um, it's, it's about the potential, the possibility, the opportunity. It's not about, this is exactly what I'm going to do because it's, it's not going to go exactly how you plan. And investors it will know not. That. Investors know that as well. Well, I, I think some of them don't though. I think some yeah, of them, maybe. you know, I've, I've had that question. They say, well, if I give you a dollar, how many dollars back well, am I going to give you? <laughs> and I, I remember one person I stood up in front of an audience and they said, Paul, if I give you a dollar, how many dollars back are you going to give me? And I said, I would be lying if I answered that question, you know, and and I think that anybody that stands up here and tells you and promises you for every dollar you give them, you're going to give them, you know, X amount back. I think they're lying to you and you should be really cautious about that. And that didn't go over well, but that's that's how I felt, you know, that's that's, true. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, so I remember thinking very specifically when I was raising that, like, and this, I guess comes down to confidence is there's no question that an investor is going to ask that I haven't already thought about 10 times. But how beautiful is it when that happens? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's actually, I, I found that investors, whenever it comes to like, not, not the numbers specifically, but more like your product vision. Yeah. They don't, they're not going to ask super deep questions. Like it was pretty surface level that I found. Um, so anything that they, that I, I, they all, and generally similar to like the media, I guess, whenever you're getting interviewed, they ask the same questions. Mm. Like they all, they they all ask, okay, so what about bandwidth? Right. Whenever you're building a a video conferencing, how do you deal with that? Oh, well it's P to P. So it's, it doesn't matter. I've answered this 27 times. Uh, it's, it's kind of like that, that type of thing. So, yeah, I've, I've found that each kind of entity kind of focuses in on what they're concerned. Some might focus on mm-hmm. the numbers and some might focus in on the marketing, the product or the team. Um, so, so yeah, know who you're pitching to. Yeah. And that's a big deal. Understanding, you know, what are their hot buttons? What, what triggers them? Yeah. And, and again, like, and your going, pitch is going to change. I mean, the, actually the best pitchers in that are the ones that can adapt to the audience and adapt to the people that they're talking to. Right. And also like, you know, whether it's a phone call, a Skype or mm-hmm. a stand up pitch or whatever, like, like think about what, what is your goal coming out of this phone call? Again, like nobody that does a Skype presentation or a pitch, like they're not going to say, Oh, stop right there. We're ready to invest. You know, like I'm sure that's happened before once or twice, but like, it, you know, statistically it's not going to happen a lot. So know what your goal is going into it and then push to get to that goal. You know, is it a follow up phone call? Is it, you know, an uh, agreement or enter into due diligence or whatever it is. How do you, how do you know the audience? How do you get to know the audience? Is it kind of a self-awareness issue? Well, I think part of it is, is research. I mean, so you know, you should know going into an angel group or to a, a VC. Kind of how they react to things. What do they invest in? See, it's funny because I don't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Pray tell. Uh, Pray tell, tell me. Oh, um, I kind of like going in blind because uh, maybe it's sometimes I get nerves, mm. right? So um, <laughs> one guy though, he's, he, I was pitching somebody and he said, do you know who I am? And I was like, no, I don't. And he goes, you didn't go Google me. That's what he told me. <laughs> go Google me. I was like, yeah, I can already tell like we're not going to get along. We're not gonna work like, this isn't going to go well. But I kind of like that. Um, going into, um, and I've done both, like I've researched, I don't think there's right or wrong, but like for me personally, like I don't like doing a ton of research on the firm, on the person, on the whatever, because I start to kind of build up these false stories in my head. Yeah. Whereas if it's just a person on the street, like it doesn't matter if it's somebody a bump into at a coffee shop or some billionaire, you know, like I'm going to talk to them the same way. What the research can do is sometimes, um, minimize your, some of the dead ends. Like if you go in and and say, here's a particular, um, here's a, um, here's a venture group that doesn't invest in my industry at all. Well then I've done the research and I know that I shouldn't be pitching these guys. They're never going to invest me. Right. One thing that I think people need to also understand going into it is that like it needs to be just as much fit for the entrepreneur as for the investor. And so, you know, don't go into this like pitch thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, out of 10 pitches, I'm going to get all 10 of them. Like that's not real. That's not, and, and it's just not a good fit. So I think, you know, um, we, uh, we always say like a fast no is better than a slow maybe. Um, and, and a yes is great, but, um, 
push push the person that you're pushing or push the person that you're presenting to to a yes or a no um, because if they're going to drag you out for maybe as long as they can but if you can get them to say no that's better so you can kind of move on and, and go to the next step and also I mean this sounds really really basic but I've pushed I've, I've mentored a lot of teams and I can tell a lot of them don't do it um, a pro tip is go Google like the best pitches online and the most recent and you know whatever's hot and the style and whatever it is um, a lot of work is but don't try to reinvent the wheel look at what's happening you know i think mimicry is okay like you can actually launch conference has tons and yep. tons of material hundreds there of, and hundreds of pitch pitches pitch. that you could watch on the here's team. here's what you need to do with those as well you need to record yourself pitching yes you know whether it's over the phone or whether it's on skype or whether it's stand up record yourself and compare yourself to the best pitches gazoon type so record yourself and compare yourself to the best pitches that you see because if you're not at that level or you're not even close like just you know like keep working that, yeah like you, you you need that's where you need to be so uh, that, you, that's there's a great point because I, I think a lot of people think they can pitch and just you know don't practice the best no, pitches man uh, i mean no. demo day for in motion i don't know how many pitch practices we have and how many times they go over and over and over that particular thing so they know it and you need to do that not only for demo day but so that when you are in a pitch and they take you off um your game where it's like yeah. oh, i don't want to talk about that right now i want to talk about this and it's like oh, you have to be able to pivot yeah. and and adapt on the fly and the more you know your pitch backwards forwards up and down yep. the more comfortable you're going to be and the more likely you are going to, yeah. to continue one that thing, conversation one thing that i that i've found that works and this is more toward um public speaking and not not really toward pitching but i think it's interchangeable is record yourself um at least in audio doing it one time just kind of um saying it however you would say it naturally and then listen to that over and over like like literally for Right. five hours straight right. and and that to me that like helps me memorize it because i can take that with me i can do it whenever you know if it's a couple days before the pitch i can just kind of take that recording and listen to it yep. many many times over yep so it's like an efficiency thing i guess also last thought you are pitching i think a lot of entrepreneurs like they say <laughs> you're like, always pitching yes oh <laughs> like hey i just want to show you the saying like whatever and you're like well you're you're pitching and they're like no 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 i'm like no you're always <laughs> pitching like even if you're asking for advice like and people, they just don't understand that. Like it's nothing you flip on or off. Like if you're telling somebody about your company, you're pitching and, and you, the end goal should always be, um, like get somebody excited, get their wheels turning, get them. I mean, you want to convert that person into like a, a company advisor, right? Like they turn around and they go tell people about this awesome thing that they found. So, um, you are pitching. We sat down with Tyler Crowley, pitch coach for companies like Dropbox, Mint, and Yammer. He's also an incredible startup community builder in Stockholm, Sweden. All right, so uh, Tyler, you started your career in LA with Jason Kalkanis and started uh, co-hosting This Week in Startups, and you've done about 200 episodes with that. Uh, you then started your own company. You, you did TechCrunch 40 and 50 and the Launch Festival. Um, and now most recently you've been in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, building out the tech ecosystem there. So yeah. you've, you've had a front row seat to a lot of stuff going on in the startup scene. What has changed significantly over the last five to ten years, um, both inside and outside the valley? 
Um, well, it's interesting from a European perspective that I've had now for the last couple of years. It's added this whole new lens to look at everything because in the U.S. And, and in the Valley, it, it has it's really it has its own perspective on things, right? Um, and one of the things that's changing right now globally is Europe is really starting to get a little more respect as to what's happening. Stockholm is kind of leading that in a way with uh, Spotify at the front of that, uh, Candy Crush coming from Sp Stockholm alone, Minecraft coming from Stockholm. We have Klarna, which is equally impressive if, if you're local. It's just in the last two months uh, come over to the U.S. and they're, they're going to watch out for that. Um, it's going to be very impressive as well. And then we've got a that's Stockholm alone. And Americans have this real hard time. I mean, Stockholm, Americans don't even know where Stockholm is. Like, uh, you know, they confuse it with Switzerland. And, um, and it's a city of a million people. Let's not forget that, too. It's like there's no city in the U.S. that's creating as many unicorns uh, per million as Stockholm. We, we, we have more unicorns in L.A. or New York. <laughs> forget the population. Yeah. Uh, and then when you realize it's a million people, it's like clearly we're doing something better than America is over in Stockholm, with the exception of Silicon Valley, which is uh, <laughs> which is very unique. So uh, we have our own little Silicon Valley there because we create unicorns at the exact same rate that Silicon Valley does uh, per million people. So it's um, Silicon Valley needs to get over its little ego uh, <laughs> because it's becoming a global race. Like the, the secrets are out of the box. The information's online. The crowdfunding element also plays into this. This is the other kind of trend number one is it the, the tech and startup innovation and web innovation is going global. Um, macro trend number two is the, the financing of this is no longer locked into Silicon Valley. You can now uh, kind of fund companies globe more or less anywhere. Um, and that's getting easier by the month, uh, by the year. Is that because in investors are, are seeing what's coming out of the valley and saying, oh, we can play that game, or...? Yeah, well, part of, it is, part of it is the valuations in the valley are driving investors to look elsewhere. That's starting to happen right now. Um, it's funny, uh, there's some Swedish investors who thought, wow, we need to go see what's going on in the valley, and they go over to the valley. And they were like, why the hell did we even bother coming here? Like the, the valuations in Sweden are a, a third of this and the quality's equal, if not slightly better. So you don't have to, you know, in, in a town of a million people, you don't have to fish through lots of crap. It's like the, the hit rate is quite high. So, um, yeah, the, you know, it, it's, it's a global thing now. It's the funding is easier. Why is funding easier? It's partly because the web companies now, again, like they did in 99, 2000, are really hitting these massive growth spurts like Uber, right, and uh, um, Instagram. And you're seeing very young individuals with relatively little experience creating billionaire uh, status in two, three, four, or five years. And that triggers natural human sort of envy in people. <laughs> and for good or bad and um, and that's inspiring a lot of people to want to do their own startups um, and it's inspiring investors to want to invest in potential next billion dollar companies as well 
Uh, so it's triggering the greed thing. It leads naturally to the question of, is this another bubble? Well, there are similarities to 99 in that there's this rush to want to do startups or invest in startups. But there is a real difference on many levels from last time, which I'm, I'm of the camp that we are not in any sort of major bubble of sorts. We're in a little bit of a valuation bubble, especially in Silicon Valley. That doesn't apply to Sweden at all. So valuations in Sweden and, and most everywhere outside the valley are still relatively sort of sane. So um, nonetheless, there's a lot of, it is easier than ever to do companies uh, because the, the information's out there. And that, that's, I think, an exciting thing. It's a good thing. Uh, you know, I've always been in LA and, you know, and remote. So I'm a fan of, of it going global. I think that's better for everybody that it becomes global. So you've, you, you've sat next to and talked to some of the greatest entrepreneurs of, of, of the last decade, whether it's you know, Ev Williams or Elon Musk or even Jason Kalkanis. What makes those folks different than the, the average entrepreneur? Um, um, focus is high on that list for sure. That's the first word that comes to mind with um, um, the folks you mentioned. And... And a sort of tenacity uh, and, and belief, self-belief, and, and a willingness to kind of just tune out the, the criticism and the naysaying. It, it is interesting, uh, you know, a lot of people do take the criticism and the naysaying a little too seriously, and it does take sort of a blind, not blind, but just confidence and, and determination and, and a lot of focus. There's so much crap out there. And the folks just keep their head down and they go. That's the, the, the thing that seems. And in addition to like a high degree of focus, a dedication to the vision that they are pursuing, right? Like they're, they have an, oh, uh, quite a, yeah, like an obsession. It's a, the first priority. It's not a, ha not a hobby. And they're, they're f fulfilling a destiny or a vision. Uh, and they're deeply committed to it. And I think that deep commitment think magic happens and this I don't want to get too philosophical but to the way I perceive it is that oftentimes when you're committed to uh, and you're in tune with what the universe wants to um, make happen and if you're you you the universe will use you in that way to make it happen and magic will happen if you're in tune with um, being that agent of driving that, uh, I'm, I mean, again, this will, some people will interpret this as I'm a bit crazy, but the, I feel like the technological future is already sort of predetermined in a way, and we are agents of fulfilling it. And um, I think some individuals are really in tune with what the universe wants to have, you know, fulfilling this universal, uh, some of these things. And when when you do play the role correctly, like the, the cards come together, it's it's kind of almost you can watch it happen. It's like it's amazing to watch Uber grow the way that it has to have that much growth. So many weird little things have to happen in in so many different cities, and so many things have to come together. And I'm not to undermine the work that goes into all of that. Yeah, sure. I'm not not at all. It takes an, an insane amount of work, but it's. Well, it seems like part of it could be an, uh, you know the density and the attraction to working with other smart people and just being in that particular environment. Maybe that's why you know, the valley seems to attract those types of people that are at the bleeding edge of, of creativity and execution. 
Yeah, well, good executors surround themselves with other good executors, and there's, there is a tone to that. And it's often, there's not a lot of negativity. Like, ex- good executors don't want to be around negative people. They want to be around, you know, really thoughtful, in- intelligent, problem-solving types. They're very problem-solving oriented, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there isn't a lot of room for being negative in situations like that, so... So I want to get back to the the startup ecosystem thing. Obviously, you helped build out uh, the LA's tech scene um, and have been around in that. And then, again, you moved over to Europe. And you, I think you consult with governments and that around the world about you know how do you create these startup ecosystems. What are some of the things that you found um, working around the world with early-stage startup ecosystems? Whew. Yeah. Well, it can be a very organic pro- It's happening everywhere, this, mm-hmm. this startup phenomena, right? I mean, here in Lincoln, Nebraska, it's happening... It's happening in towns all over the world, uh, and I'm I'm in Croatia and Australia and Japan and all over. So it's um, it's a global phenomenon. It's a beautiful thing, and in most places, it's happening at a very organic process. Where I refer to it, there is a recipe uh, to baking this startup cake of an eco of a really highly functioning ecosystem. And in in LA, it took. It was an organic process, and it took three and a half years or so before we really started to see some, and, and that was get with lots of smart people, you know, with some passion and with a motive. Our motive was we were tired of our friends being forced to move to Silicon Valley to get funding, <laughs> and we wanted to change the tide on that, and and we that was we were rather successful, and so now LA startups don't really need to move up there, and in fact the the Silicon Valley investors have come down to L.A., and Chris Saka being one of them. And, um, yeah, so that, in, that recipe, looking back at L.A., I mean, it was London who came to L.A., and they wanted to grow London and asked me, well, you know, what are you doing here in, in Santa Monica that's making this really, what they said, the, the, actual, the question was, what's the secret recipe? Mm-hmm. And I had not ever thought of it in those terms. And sort of by the end of dinner, by the time dessert came around, I had been <laughs> all throughout dinner kind of writing on my napkin, like what had been helpful and meaningful in, in over the last three and a half years. And sort of wrote, came up with the recipe of the things that really mattered and, and how they interact with each other. And that's why the recipe metaphor is so useful. It's like you, eggs in and of itself isn't so great, but when you combine it with flour and sugar and water and an oven and, and a bowl and a spoon, you can make you know something quite magical. So um, it's how they interplay with each other. And, you know, saw it happen in London, and they made very good use of sort of the, the, the recipe model and then took it firsthand to Stockholm, uh, and when I arrived there, noticed that the quality of the ingredients were really good there, but they just weren't being mixed. Mm-hmm. And it was ju- really just a matter of mixing. And I got very excited because it, it really reminded me of L.A. 2007, 2008. And I was going around telling everybody, like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to bake an amazing cake here. Um, and they looked at me very oddly. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't blame them. Um, and in the last two years, we've really made some awesome cake happen over there. It's uh, It's... It's quite awesome to see. Um, so, what are the first things that you kind of did, or, or what, the, the ingredients that you used, or yeah, the, the there's some there's about ten different ingredients, but there's like four or five main ingredients, like similar with a cake. So, the first main ingredient is you, it needs a branding. 
um, just as a name, you need, it's hard to, for something to exist without a name, right? You, you, if you have a community, okay, great, what's it called? Because <laughs> until it has a name, you can't even really refer to it. So you, gotta, you have to brand it, and in the case of Silicon Beach, it's called Silicon Beach. And before that name, it's hard to even say there is a community, right? You can, um, and where is it? So until it has a name and a place, does it exist, right? Does something exist without a name and a place? So um, you have to create a nest, what I call, metaphorically. So the first ingredient is what I call a flag. And the flag is a social media hashtag and a brand. And in Silicon Beach's case, it's Silicon Beach. In Stockholm's case, it's Stockholm Tech. S-T-H-L-M, which is short for Stockholm. It's S-T-H-L-M Tech. Um, and then the nest in L.A. Uh, was Koloft. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Santa Monica, <laughs> and in in Stockholm, it's called SUP, SUP46, SUP46, which is Startup People of Sweden. 46 is the country code for Sweden. Mm-hmm. So, and SUP46, the model is really uh, nearly a carbon copy of, of Koloft in LA. And that venue itself has to have three core ingredients, which is a, a co-working space, a meeting space, mm-hmm and an event space has to have all three. It's very different from just a co-working space. It's a a meeting space where all the co-working stuff happens, uh, all the events, all the meetup groups with a stage and lights and Wi-Fi and sound and hopefully enough parking for people. Um, Having that meeting space is critical because it will allow and enable other event organizers to get inspired to create their own meetup groups. So you'll quickly grow from when I got to Stockholm, there was about 24 meetup groups, and now there's about 85. And this, and it's because they have this default place where they, can, if they want to do one, they can do it. Mm-hmm. Once you have a stage and a venue, and then you have a calendar on the wall of all the other meetup groups that are happening on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. So the people who come Thursday night say, "Oh wow, next week there's mm-hmm. a Ruby group and an iPhone developer group and a designer group and." You know, it just feeds on itself. And then you add in the hashtag factor to that, and at every event, everyone's using the hashtag at event, and everyone else sees it, what's going on. And that's just two of the ingredients. So you know, we've only combined eggs and flour at this point. And then you get the third, another third ingredient, which is a documentarian, which is one individual who goes to every single event and creates a blog of it. It's like an amateur journalist, tech journalist. And every market starts out the same way. We had this in L.A. It was Efren at TechZulu. And, and then we had a second one, SoCalTech. And then we had, in Stockholm, uh, James Pember was doing Swedish startup space. And it's because the, and early on, the journalism isn't going to be focused on the startup community, like right when you create the branding and everything. But they will about a year later. A year after you create the community and the branding and the nest, and it starts to pick up momentum and you build these meetup groups and you, the meetup groups grow in size from like 20 people per meetup to 80 people to 100 to 200 to 300. And then, then you have one event each month where all the small meetup groups come together once a month. I call that the town hall meeting. In LA, we had that. It was Jason Nazar's event called Startups Uncensored. I do that event in Stockholm. It's called Stockholm Tech Meetup. I'm bringing, you know, five, six hundred people together every month. Jason was doing, you know, 400, 500 people every month. And, and then you combine that with the hashtag and everyone's there using the hashtag and you're promoting all the other events that's going on at the Nest and the documentarian is going to every single event and putting it on a blog and it creates a communication channel mm-hmm. locally for everyone to see what's going on 
but more importantly for everyone outside to see what's going on there. And this is when the community really starts to take shape and the other journalists start to realize, oh, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? Oh, there's this thing, there's this community called Stockholm Tech or Silicon Beach or, and they start writing about it. And that begins chapter two of the growth curve of the community. When the, when the professional journalists start allocating somebody to focus on the community. In LA's case, LA Times put somebody dedicated to the, to the community tech journalists in space. Forbes put somebody down there. Pando Daily put somebody down there. TechCrunch had somebody there from time to time. In Stockholm, we had Doggins Industry, which is like the business week of Sweden, put somebody full-time. Uh, and it's in multiple people in Stockholm as well, brands that you wouldn't recognize. So um, that starts phase two because when the professional journalists start writing then the politicians start hearing about it right and then once the politicians start hearing about it after that pressure cookie starts to cook hot enough they start wanting to take credit for it right and they start wanting to engage with it what can i do for you guys i need to pay attention to this group so then you're in a position to really start making some changes happening. Like in Stockholm's case, we need to fix, make it easier to import talent from outside of the EU. Immigration-wise, we need a, to fix the housing policy. We have to fix the stock option taxations as the stock options there get taxed uh, at, the, at the income level, which make them inefficient as a kind of leverage tool to bring in new talent into startups. So we're working right now. We're finally getting into that stage now where we're really working with the with the politicians over these three issues. In fact, my next monthly meetup, I do the monthly meetup in Stockholm. That's who's on stage is the the migration board director, the the new uh, people from the government who are writing the new policy for the stock option bill. All of this is happening at our next monthly meetup. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, Santa Monica, you know, the Silicon Beach was very similar. We got to a point. I remember, you know, we kept trying to email the mayor at the time like we're doing all this stuff and they just they didn't care and then one day they kind of woke up and it was like the mayor was popping by every tech event and um you know and they were like what can we how can we help you know and it was like in in america's case we're like just stay out of our way and give us lower taxes like um you know give us better wi-fi can you put fiber in our building you know stuff like that uh sweden has amazing fast internet everywhere it was it's we had some core stuff we needed to fix which is great um, and then you get to a point where you put on your really big annual event, like when the community really starts to take shape. And so that's where we're at with Stockholm now. I do a, an annual event there in September coming up. You know, we're expecting 5,000 people. We did it last September. The first year it was 3,000 people. And it's really cool because then you have a platform to invite people from all, the, all over the region and even global. Stockholm's getting to a point. We just had an article in... Um, uh, major UK publication um, like Financial Times is now quoting Stockholm is the tech center of Europe a city of a million people and they're, cl- they're saying it's above Berlin and London so and that's a London publication claiming this so um, it's been really interesting to see and having this annual event is kind of the icing on the cake um, these are all things that I wrote when Stockholm said, can you come and help us do this? I, it was all those things, the, the, the hashtag, the, the branding, the venue, which is the, what I call the nest, the documentarian, the monthly event, the annual event, you know, and then you have to have a pipeline of talent, mm-hmm. which are the schools providing good talent. Hopefully, hopefully the city has a, a technical school providing good engineering talent. Um, if not, you got to find another way to get them there. You know, and, and Boulder sort of had to, 
yeah. overcome that and import the talent. Um, Sydney had has to come up with a way to like import the the kind of the computer science PhDs from China that want to immigrate to to uh, Sydney. So it's uh, it's a real challenge if you're not lucky enough to have a really good technical school. So you're a big advocate for startup events and have run them and everything from Launch Festival to the ones you're doing now. Uh, what are some things that founders can do to m- make the most of you know going to an event and being part of it? Because oftentimes you hear that you know startup folks go too many. There's too many events out there, and it's it's you know you actually have to at some point go heads down and build some stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you could, you would recommend for early founders to to utilize that network of a, an event? Hmm how to make the most out of going to a tech event. Mm, I would do homework in advance, find out who's going to be there that you know, you know, generally when I go to events, I, uh, this is my own strategy is I figure out in advance, like who do I want to try and connect with there um, and sort of make a pre-plan to connect with them there and already have the conversation clear in my mind and how I'm going to approach them and what I want very clearly and how I plan to engage them and, and it's not a casual thing at all. It's not like, oh, it'd be nice to meet this person. Although, truthfully, that is a lot of the best things that come out of events is that serendipitous, nice kind of stuff. But um, And that's the magic you can't plan for, right? And that's why we do events. But I try to guarantee that I'm at least going to get my money's worth. Like if I'm going to pay 50 bucks or 100 bucks or 300, 400, 500 bucks, I'm going to get my damn money back. Like, I'm going to get my 500 <laughs> bucks worth. And if I'm going to go introduce myself to so-and-so and you know you know i just make that very clear to myself up front and i do you know i look at my own startup like well, am i going to be able to get one client out of this two clients out of this one good relationship that's going to lead to an intro maybe meet another startup who has a client i want and we can do a deal you know i just get i try and rationalize it all up front and do do a cost benefit analysis and if I think it's worth it, then I go there. And then once you're there, it's really easy to remind yourself, listen, I paid 500 bucks to be at this thing. I better get, <laughs> I'm going to get my money's worth. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't go into them randomly and leave it all to chance is sort of my advice. And that, that way, if you're disappointed, you can only really be disappointed yourself yeah, not at the event. So, so we're sitting in an airport lounge here in Lincoln. And we brought you in to do uh, something, uh, pitch pitch coaching, basically. You're also well-known as a kind of the pitch whisperer, having worked with, obviously, all the companies that have gone through the launch festival with you know Mint and Dropbox and Yammer and, and different companies like that. What are some of the things that, uh, top tips and hints that could improve your startup pitch for these early founders that we're talking to out in our audience? Well, there's, I've sort of developed a methodology, um, along with Jason uh, and working with every company that's come through launch over eight years now doing it, uh, I refer to it as mental movie making and it involves creating a character at the beginning of the pitch. And you can see uh, a lot of these pitches uh, in the launch festival YouTube account because we record the launch festival pitches and put them on the YouTube account. You can see this and what you, the thing you'll notice that's in common of each of these and we spend hours and hours and hours with each of those companies pitching on that stage they all come in very rough and they all come in with making the same classic mistakes that everybody makes. <clears throat> and the most impactful thing to do is to first to make your pitch very memorable and emotional. And the quickest way to do that is to turn it into a story with a character and with drama. And, and we do this because it takes, it takes the listener into a different place. 
instead of listening to a PowerPoint, they're listening to a, sto- a story. And people love to listen to stories. We pay money to listen to stories, like movies and, and TV shows and all that. Um, and it's the difference between like when you're watching an infomercial or C-SPAN versus Game of Thrones. I mean, it's that big of a difference when you use the methodology. It's like, who wants to watch C-SPAN? Like, it's just painful. I, to me, watching conventional startup pitches can be quite painful. It's a very analytical right brain, mm-hmm. sorry, a very left brain exercise. So um, I love the story methodology, and it's as simple as saying, you know, you come right out, slide one with a character who it best represents the user of your product or whoever you're building the solution for. Oftentimes there's two characters because maybe it's a marketplace with two sides, right? Like Uber, where it's a driver and a, or Airbnb, you know, there's so many marketplaces. You'll need two characters. We say, this is John and John is, you know, whatever the demographic of your ideal user is. And John's got some problem. And, and this is the problem you're solving with your, you know, your solution. John's got this problem. He's tried everything out there. He's trying all your competitors and everything sucks. And it, or here's why it doesn't quite work or it's too expensive or whatever. And he's really starting to panic because if he doesn't solve this problem, there's some consequence. He's either going to get fired or his girlfriend's going to leave him or whatever. Luckily for John, he just learned about your solution. And now when he tries your solution, he logs in and it's very simple. And it's a very simple equation at this point. You want your solution to provide far more value than, than John puts into the system. You want John to put in X and you want John to get back 10X, a minimum of 3X, at least, you know, hopefully 5X. And the more of that multiple, John does two clicks, he gets back awesome stuff, right? He uploads an Excel spreadsheet and he gets back, you know, tons of value or he does some minor thing. And the bigger that multiple is, the more impressive the user is. It's like, oh, wow. Right. So if if you require five clicks and, you know, then you better really give back. A lot. If it's one click, you know, and that's why these one click apps work so well. Because all I did was press one button and the car comes and I get in and I did nothing. <laughs> right. And um, so be mindful of that. So the character does whatever they would normally do to solve this problem. They have a problem um, and they do the regular stuff with the regular solutions out there and they fall short. And then they find about your solution and then they try it. They, they put minimal input into it. They get maximum output out of it and they love it. And that's the core of the story, really. I mean, we can go into far more detail, but that's, that's the core of the story. So what's next on your plate, and how can uh, our audience uh, connect with you to find out more about what you're building? Whew. Next on my plate is the big summer event in Stockholm, September 1st and 2nd, called Stockholm Tech Fest. Um, and I just have got my head down getting every good speaker, sponsor I can for that event between now and then. Uh, it's a lot of work doing these you know, 5,000 people events. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to come out there, let me know. Um, I'll, I'll make it worth your while if you come out. If you, if you want to see what's going on in Sweden, I mean, Stockholm is just such an amazing uh, hub of innovation. Come all of those amazing unicorns coming out of one tiny little town like that. There's definitely something in the water. Uh, and it's not a coincidence. There's, there's a reason. And, and I can talk about why Stockholm works, but um, it has, it's one of these cities that 
actually, you know, every, all the other cities are starting to look. As a matter of fact, I just went down to Paris because Paris is trying to figure out why Stockholm's so good. And it was very reminiscent of why London came to Santa Monica. And I had to tell the, tell the French, like, first of all, the Swedes speak perfect English. You know, that's, that's part of it. Like, I, maybe we can end the conversation right there. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they weren't so happy to hear that that was part of why Sweden works. But, uh, yeah, my, my big thing is the, the big tech event. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Tyler for taking time to catch up with us. If you have any questions for us this week, just reach out on Twitter at the IO podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, you should probably go and do that now. Also, you can follow the host of this show at Artinger, at Paul Jarrett, and me at Matt Boyd on Twitter as well. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.